Hi, welcome to n etv I'm Peggy Robinson. Today's guest is Rosemary Thornton. Hi, Rosemary. Hi. And um, you can just take the floor and share your story for as long as you want, however you like. Oh, wow. My, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure I've ever done that before. <laughs> well, first, thank you very much for having me on your show. I know you and I talked, I guess, back in January. Uh, so I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I, uh, you know, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, do you, do you have a purpose? Why did you come back after being dead for 10 minutes? Why were you sent back? You must have a purpose. And I was like, oh, <laughs> go have fun. I don't know, you know, to, to go, I don't know, just go have a good time, I think. But then I started giving talks. People invited me to give talks after they heard my story. And then with COVID, I started doing podcasts and these uh, Zoom talks, and it seemed like it kind of snowballed. And uh, one of the most frequently asked questions I got in the early days was, is there a book? And I said, no, I've written nine books. I'm not going to write another. Nine is a good number to end on. <laughs> and my books had been on architectural history, uh, basically old houses. And I had been a newspaper reporter for a time, and I'd written for websites, and I, I know how hard it is to write. And then one of the stories that really inspired me to go ahead and write a book was uh, I gave a talk. One of the first talks I gave was to an IONS group in Virginia. And one of the short stories I shared, and I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to go back and think about those early talks because they weren't very good. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing because I have been a lecturer on architectural history for 20 years. Well, it turns out it's pretty different genre to go from talking about old houses to talking about <laughs> dying and coming back. But in one of the early talks, I shared a story that, uh, well, it was my, what started all of this, I guess. I had a pretty good life. Uh, I lived with a man that I thought was the love of my life. He was handsome, he was sophisticated. He was educated. He was well-traveled. He was brilliant. Truly one of the most brilliant men I've ever met anywhere, anytime, anyplace. He breezed through law school without studying because he said uh, he would not study before he took tests because he said studying seemed like cheating. He had an eidetic memory. So when he read a textbook, he memorized that textbook. Wow. So he was, he was quite remarkable in so many ways. But uh, we had what I thought was a great life. We lived in a lovely home in um, East Coast City. We lived on a lake, which was also very nice. I really, you know, I thank God every day of my life that my life, my early years had been turbulent and difficult, but now my life was so sweet. And it was largely because of this man. And then uh, one day he came home for lunch and he killed himself at our home. And that... Uh, I, I lost my mind. I mean, we used to call it a nervous breakdown. I guess it was a psychotic break. I don't know. And then 29 months later, I mean, I, I was a mess. I couldn't even take care of myself. I mean, I had been an author. I traveled all over the country. I'd given more than 200 lectures in 25 states. I was fairly accomplished in my profession. I knew what to do. I knew how to do it. And I was good at it. It was a niche topic. I actually wrote about the old Sears kit homes from the Sears Roebuck catalogs, but I was very good at it. On an aside, Sears offered 370 designs of kit homes, and there are uh, 32 years in the kit home business. 
And sadly, when Sears closed the Modern Homes Department in 1940, they destroyed all the sales records. So the only way to find these homes is literally one by one. So I memorized each of the 370 designs. And I memorized it by opening the catalog page and looking at the house and taking a picture with my mind. So that was fun. That was sport. And so I didn't realize. you have a photographic memory. I guess so. I didn't realize that not everybody could take a picture with their mind. And I mean, I can still tell you these many years later, how many windows are on the front of a Sears Crafton? How many fireplaces are in a Sears Magnolia, which is also known as a 2047? I mean, I, I can't can tell, tell you, you what cars my kids drive. <laughs> like they so I, on, I say, whose car is that? I have no photographic that I can say it, memory at all. I had a good memory. So I had found a good career for me. So after he did this, after he killed himself, I lost my mind and I, I actually lost the ability to read. I liken the effects of severe trauma to more of that of a stroke victim because I lost my fine motor skills and my gross motor skills. I did lose the ability to read. And while I could read words, you know, red, shoe, box, whatever, I could not put them together. I did not understand what they meant. And about 18 months out, I had to reteach myself how to read by reading juvenile books. And I remember so clearly thinking, I, I mean, I had written nine books. And the way I wrote those books was by reading voluminous amounts of material and then condensing it into a book. And to lose the ability to read was shocking. And I mean, an example of how far this had gone, at some point, I remember I had, a, I had a friend living with me. I was not able to take care of myself, which was pretty humbling. And at one point I decided to make a cake for dinner or make a cake for something, I don't know. And I handed, I looked at the box mix and it was eggs and oil and water and something else. And I could not comprehend it. I could not figure out what it was trying to tell me. I became very angry and I handed it to my roommate slash caregiver and said, I, I, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't know what it's telling me. And he took it and he, he made it and he, you know, it all came out fine. And Was I watched. Was it clinical depression? No, I, if, if it's anything, it was situational depression. It was situational depression I plus see. extreme trauma. Depending on whom you ask, uh, somebody did a psychological study, and I, I can't cite it right now, but they have said that the suicide of a child or a spouse is akin in terms of psychological damage to that of a concentration camp survivor. I mean, it wrecks your brain and it wrecked mine. And I'd always thought of myself as a pretty smart cookie. And now I wasn't able to follow the directions on a, on a recipe. So, uh, but I did teach myself how to read again. I found a juvenile book and I remember I read the first page about 25 times. I thought, okay, they're talking about you know, this and that. And then I went to page two. But so um, I was giving a talk. Well, I guess I should continue along that line. So 29 months out, I was not doing very well um, to the world. You know what I had learned to do? I had learned how to pretend. I had learned how to look like I was okay because that's what everyone wants to see. After 29 months, people are saying, you know, you, you should have moved on by now. There's something wrong. You should not be having these struggles, these problems, etc." And what they don't understand is this was not that my husband died in a hospital bed with me at his side, holding his hand, stroking his forehead and saying, I will see you again one day. I love you forever. This was a man who used a gun to end his life at our home. And there's just no difference. And way too many widows trying to be helpful, but would say, oh, I know how hard it is to lose a spouse. You don't know how hard it is to lose a spouse to suicide. The woulda, coulda, shoulda will swamp you. Now, didn't he leave a note blaming you? Uh, he left a text message that was not kind. 
Um, but prior to that, we had had, um, he called me up and there was an argument and uh, that was very difficult. And then, you know, he, the phone call ended and he did this and I didn't know. I didn't, I, I, there was no clue. And that's the other thing. People, people ask the wrong questions. People will say, oh, there must've been signs. There must've been something that you saw that he did. Nope, nope, nope. People who are serious about ending their life, keep their mouths shut. So when I got to 29 months, I had, I had struggled mightily with my own suicidal ideation. And I mean mightily. So that's the reason that the name of my book is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. And that subtitle is not just a cute subtitle. It was, I think, had this not happened, I think there's a pretty good chance I would have ended my own life. And we all know what a spiritual tragedy that is, really, when you end your own life. I mean, I think, I think we make our lives harder when we do that. We certainly make the lives of everyone around us harder. So 29 months out, I had some weird symptoms. I went to a, a gynecologist and they diagnosed me with cervical cancer. I couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, every night I had prayed three prayers, which was God either heal me or let me die. Uh, two, when I do die, spare me a life review. And three was, I can't handle any more decisions. There were a lot of difficult decisions to be made after he ended his life. So when I was diagnosed with stage two cancer, uh, I was referred to an oncologist. And I thought, you know, I was pretty clear in that prayer, heal me or let me die. I didn't say, let me die slowly. The slower the better and I was very upset I thought I thought I almost lost my faith completely and yet when you're in dire straits as they say there are no atheists in foxholes you you have only one thing to cling to so uh, I was scheduled for a cervical biopsy September 5th actually and uh, that's where they anesthetize you and take some pieces of flesh out and after the biopsy I woke in a recovery room and, um, you know, they want you out of there as fast as possible because they have more people, more people need to come in. And I told the RN who attended me that I was bleeding profusely. And she said, once you get home and lie down, you'll feel better. And I told her that two more times and both, all three times. And I have a witness. She said, once you get home and lie down, this will stop. And I said, I've, I've been in possession of this particular body for 59 years. I know when something has gone bad or wrong. And something has gone bad or wrong, but I was sent home anyway. And once at home, I realized I was bleeding to death. I had a house with wall-to-wall -wall white carpet. And I was so terrified of messing up that carpet with all this blood. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're bleeding to death, housekeeping is important. And so I actually went and I stood in my shower. <laughs> and in my shower, I, I just let the blood run down the drain. And I could think, you know, I didn't have to worry about making a mess. You know, we're all very well-behaved women, aren't we? So I could think for a minute and I thought, you know, you've been praying every night that God will let you go, either heal me or let me die. And I thought, this may be God's mercy. And I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God will show you a way out. And I, I had heard that early on, shortly after his suicide. I thought, this is my way out. This is God's mercy. And I thought about that. I thought, all I have to do is sit down on the shower floor because I was already getting a little woozy and weird. So I thought, all I have to do is sit down and this will be over. And I really thought about that. And, you know, one of the things I was talking to a very dear friend yesterday, she and I were talking about the three temptations of Christ. And in one of them, the devil cites the 91st Psalm that if you, you know, if you throw yourself off this cliff, the angels will rescue you. And I realized in retrospect, I wonder if that first Corinthians 10, 13 was not a devilish whisper. 
that all I have to do is sit down and I will pass on quietly because I knew enough to know that bleeding to death is not a bad way to go. And I thought about it and thought about it standing in the shower. And I thought about the two friends that had driven me home from the hospital and they were on the other side of that wall. I thought, you know, these two people, since his suicide, these two people have been very involved in my life. They have worked indefatigably to keep me going, to keep me alive, to keep me moving forward one day at a time. Is it really fair to them for them to come into this bathroom in five or 10 or 15 minutes and find me splayed on the floor, dead? Oh, man, I guess not. So I pushed off the wall. Yes, yeah, not a pretty way to go. Uh, easy, but not pretty. And I... I decided um, to step out of that shower because I was still standing at this point. And I stepped out of the shower and I, I wrapped a towel, multiple towels around me. And I stepped out into the living room and I said, call an ambulance. I'm bleeding to death. And they did. Ambulance took me to a little ER, standalone ER. It didn't have a hospital connected to it, which was a mistake. And by the way, the ambulance that carried me there did not use lights or siren, which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, one of the comments I was talking to a friend last night, and I know this is a very old statistic. And I don't know if it's still true, but as a proportion, more women die from cardiac arrest, from heart attack than men. And the reason is that when women say, oh, my chest is hurting, I feel like I can't breathe. There's a tightness in my shoulder. My jaw aches. It's dismissed as a panic attack. Whereas when a, a male comes in with those symptoms, they're like, oh, my gosh, it's probably a heart attack. So as a proportion, more women who present to the hospital with symptoms of cardiac arrest actually die than men. And I think we still tend to dismiss women. I mean, I was obviously losing a phenomenal amount of blood and the ambulance drivers didn't even use lights and siren. And they carried me to an ER that was really more akin to a urgent care facility. So there were a lot of mistakes made. And somebody said, if you had it to do over again, what would you do? I don't know. I told them I'm bleeding to death. You know, I was not screaming. I was not ranting. I was speaking calmly and authoritatively. But anyway, there you go. So the ER, scream and rant sometimes. I suppose. But a few more mistakes were made there. And uh, um, they also decided it was non-emergent. And they packed me with gauze, which turned out to be a big boo-boo. And then they gave me a shot of Dilaudid, which was also a mistake. That's a morphine derivative. So when they packed me with gauze, it turns out it did not stop the bleeding. It just stopped the mess. Yeah. So before I lost consciousness, uh, the nurse and RN to my left, she looked to be about my age. Uh, I reached out and grabbed her hand and I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she said, oh, honey, we have many solutions for this. You're not going to die. And I was very comforted by that because, you know, now I had decided to do this deal. I wanted to wanted to make it so. And shortly after that, that's when they gave me the Dilaudid. I, I lost consciousness. And uh, it was pretty interesting. My friend had accompanied me. He said the blood pressure cuff that they had left hooked up before they left the room, the nurse and RN, I'm sorry, the nurse and the doctor both left the room. Uh, my friend said at one point the blood pressure cuff read 32 over 25. <laughs> And he stood up to go get help. And that's when the nurse, he heard the nurse uh, come down the hallway because at that point, apparently the alarm went off on this blood pressure machine. So, uh, you know, what's really interesting is about that time, somewhere in there, my friend said, my eyes popped open and I tried to sit up on the gurney and I tried to reach up to heaven. And he said, you put your arms up above your head 
And he said, you talk to somebody that only you could see. And I think that's pretty cool. And he said, after that, you flop back down. And then the uh, blood pressure thing just read error. And I'm pretty sure that's when I left for heaven. I've always had a, a strong belief that the soul leaves often before the body has breathed its last. And I think that's what happened in my, my case. Meanwhile, I was having a fantastic time. <laughs> I was awakened out of what seemed to be a deep, dreamless state. And I was being catapulted out of my body. And, and I've often likened it to being uh, popped out of a uh, popped out like toast out of a toaster. It really was that dramatic how I left my body. And I was floating away from my body. And several people have asked, well, did you see your body? I did not. I was floating away in blackness. And it was very velvety and comforting and comfortable. And it was just delightful. And it was comfort as a verb. It wasn't just a comfortable place. It was actively comforting me. And the peace was unimaginable. And one of my early thoughts was being a writer, I'm way too uh, prone to anxiety and nervousness and all, you know, guilt and all the other stuff that smart women have to deal with. I guess of most women, it's not fair to quantify it with smart, but I, um, I thought to myself, I always wondered what I'd look like without any of those negative attributes. And I thought, this is great. I like me without any guilt or regret or sadness or despair or anxiety. It was very exciting to see what the real me was. But uh, very early in this experience, uh, and, and you know, I've, I've often likened it to being like I'd lived my life on 60 amps and now I was experiencing 100,000 amps. And that's very accurate. It felt like I felt more alive in that moment than I had ever known in my 59 years on earth. I just felt supercharged with energy and intellect and peace. Oh my gosh. So many people talk about the love they feel. I felt perfect, perfect peace. I thought about the Bible verse, the peace that passeth all understanding. And I thought, this is that peace. This is what Paul was talking about. And, you know, many theologians believe Paul had an out-of-body experience. He talks about he talks about it in third person, I guess maybe second, you know, third person. Uh, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And theologians and scholars believe Paul's talking about himself. So, uh you know, I wonder if that piece that passeth all understanding that Paul talks about was from his own experience. But it certainly identified, it certainly resonated with me. The other thing that happened was I was having lived alone. My husband had been dead for two and a half years at this point. And having been alone, I, I talk out loud. And in this experience, I was talking out loud. And I said, my heart has stopped. And I thought, how do I know that? And I don't know how I know that, but I know that's right. And then I thought, wow. I'm dying. And then I thought, well, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. Because, you know, being a lifelong writer and editor, getting your tense right is certainly the most important thing. And that cracked me up. Because here I am. I still have my moribund sense of humor. I still am talking out loud and hearing myself. And I heard myself giggle. I heard myself giggle. And it was the same giggle I've always had. And I thought, wow. This is pretty interesting. Everything I really am has gone with me. And then I thought, I don't have breath sounds. I'm pretty sure I don't have lungs. I don't think I have vocal cords. And yet I'm producing all the same sounds I produced before in the same way I produced them before. And I sound exactly the same. And that was just all so cool. And the other thing that happened early on, and I'm still floating away from my body in this perfect blackness, 
was I felt the very definable, tangible presence of a spiritual being to my left, slightly behind me, and very, very big. And so I turned my head to the left and looked up to see who had, who had joined me now. And again, I thought, I'm turning my head to look over my left shoulder. So I have some sort of human-esque form, apparently. But as I did, I said, with a lilt in my voice, I said, and who are you? And the answer came before I could even finish the question. And the answer came with not just words, but an infusion of knowledge. And the answer was, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. And, you know, that's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And I had always loved that Bible verse. I mean, what does it mean to be the image and likeness of God? What does it mean to meet the original? And that was pretty profound. And I remember thinking my whole life I've wondered about that Bible verse. And it would have been good information to know back there. <laughs> but that's, that's the past. That's history. We're not going back there again. We're on to a new experience now. And, and that was just um, so profound to have that Bible verse explained. And, you know, I did think about the Bible verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Words are very powerful in our universe. Words are very powerful in God's universe. And I thought, I mean, I, I have thought about that so many times, that I'm the image and likeness, and there is an original. And just those words give me peace. And, you know, something that happened, uh, this just happened a couple weeks ago. Uh, being a writer type, sometimes I, I feel like I talk too much when I'm sitting down with friends. And I just jabber, 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 jabber. And then sometimes at night I think, you know, I'm trying so hard to live a life that is aligned with the will of God and to be a good person and to do good and to be a blessing in this world. And I said some things in that conversation that really didn't need to be say, said. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, maybe I should just take a vow of silence for a while. So I stopped talking and that way I won't say things that don't need to be said. I thought, boy, maybe that's not a bad idea. And then the next week I had laryngitis. <laughs> Couldn't utter a sound for about three days. And I thought, you really need to be careful about what you say. Words have power. Careful and what I, you wish for. And careful what you articulate. I mean, in the beginning was the word. Think about that. In the beginning, there was nothing but the word. And the word was God. And the word was with God. That's so huge. And here we go spewing words. And that's one of the reasons I don't watch the news anymore, but I, I do read the news once a day and I'm very careful about what I read. And I try to pray when I read about the, the war with and the invasion of um, Ukraine. I try to pray just prayers of peace. But I have found that news can be very addictive. And then I find myself repeating those very negative words and those very negative images so I'm, I'm trying to navigate my way through that still. So in this experience, I, uh, I continued on. And one of the really fascinating things, a lot of fascinating things happened, but one of them, I'm still in this blackness, but now I'm with a companion spirit, a spiritual being. And I remember thinking, I've been here before, like in this 59-year experience. This isn't the first time I've been floating in this blackness. And the angels or angel that was with me said, yeah, you know that story your mom told you about when you were an infant and you almost died? 
turns out it was an almost, (laughs) which made a lot of sense. Yeah, I was, uh, when I was born, uh, I was my mother's first baby girl and her fourth child. I developed a staph infection at a hospital. And uh, for three weeks, I, I deteriorated. And then came the night that, and this is 1959, very different world. But the doctor came to my mother and said, okay, her kidneys have failed now. And they said, he's, he told her her other organs won't be long behind. She'll be gone before morning. And they told my mother, they said, we're not going to let you sit here and watch this baby die. Go home. Focus on your other children. This one is gone. Oh. So my mother went home and went to a friend in the Christian Science Church. And the two women sat up all night and prayed through the night. And my mother said she knew that no news was good news. And uh, came the morning came, and she went back to the hospital as soon as they opened. And she said a nun was holding me. And the nun told my mother, this baby isn't better. She's healed. Wow. And that was very dramatic. And in this experience, the angels told me, and I had never thought about this. They said, yeah, you, you did pass, and we sent you back. And that explains so much. Again, good to know back there, you know, always being a weirdo in school. And hearing voices that other people couldn't hear and hearing angels talk to me and knowing things that other people couldn't know. And I would say, uh, Aunt Kathy has passed on. And they would say, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, didn't you see her? She just walked by. And they'd say, oh, you're crazy. But then the phone call comes, you know, that Aunt Kathy has just passed. And all my life I've been so different and weird and odd. And I have these things I always called my angel voices, which was when I could hear things. And I would be guided. I would be divinely guided. and. Uh, and then the other thing that happened, as soon as Raymond Moody's book came out, I think it was 76 or 78, Life After Life, I started reading every NDE book I could get my hands on. And I read them and read them and memorized them. And, you know, George Ritchie and Betty Eady and Danian Brinkley and all of them. I read them at least once and some of them multiple times. And this, again, I'm floating away in this blackness going on to my reward, I thought. And I'm thinking, you know, this answers a lot. This answers a whole lot. So at some point in this experience, I was no longer floating in this blackness, but I was standing on my own two feet and I was in a white room and it was a beautiful white room. And the funny thing is I don't remember the transition. One moment I'm floating and the next minute I'm standing on my own two feet in this white room. And again, feet. And I do remember thinking, I don't know if I have legs, feet. I don't know the mechanism, but I know I saw a door in front of me and I know I can move with intention. So I decided to create an intention to move toward that door. And sure enough, I was moving toward the door and having read all those NDE books, I knew exactly what that door meant. That door meant we were done. And, you know, I have told the story of more than a few times. And one of the things I tell and is absolutely is, is accurate as I can say, I was relieved to be done with this life. I was so relieved after my husband's suicide, I became a societal leper. I went from being part of a power couple because, you know, here I am the writer with some success and here he is a, a fancy man with credentials and a good job. And I, I was nothing. And all of our, you know, all of our smarty pants, important friends just disappeared. You know, trauma scares the crap out of people. Did uh, you lose his, everything like financially? Well, they for, the bank foreclosed on the house and that was a bad scene and it was a big bank. And I, they, I, I should restate that they started foreclosure proceedings on the house because there was still a mortgage on it. And uh, I went to the bank and I said, look, I'm selling the house and I'm selling it at a very decent price. But can we 
stop with the foreclosure proceedings and the daily mail and the notices taped to the door so that until I get it sold. And, you know, the nice lady in the bank with all the chrome and granite said, oh, my goodness, of course. I'm so sorry. Yes, I'll, I'll put a stop to that. And then two days later, more come. It's the nice lady at the bank and the, the bank itself were not communicating with each other. And ultimately, I was able to sell it. But that was another stress. I really you didn't. You were able need. to. Good. Yes, I did sell it. And, and I got my equity out. You know, it's so funny. People are people don't understand how this business works. But people are like, oh, the bank doesn't want your house. You've got all that equity in it. That's the house they want. Right. If I didn't have any equity, they'd be like, we'll work with you till the cows come home. But having equity, yeah, they wanted that house. So they, they just took, you know, if I were queen of the world, I would say, you know what, when somebody loses somebody traumatically in a way that they're all screwed up in the head, how about we give them 60 days to sort through what's sort through life before we start foreclosure proceedings? And by the way, I kept the mortgage paid 30 days in advance to prevent this very thing. But their position was since the primary lien holder had died that um, they wanted me to either refinance it or they would foreclose. And I didn't have a job. I didn't have any income. Not right. As long as you're making the payments. Right. But that didn't matter to them. That's so crap. it is. It's it, and that's the thing. Uh, suicide is really is a death like no other. And it messes up your head. And I don't know. So I was so grateful to be dead. <laughs> People say, how can you be grateful to be dead? I was grateful. I genuinely, truly, honestly felt like I had been given early release for good behavior. I really did. I felt like, wow, I got out of this. And, you know, there is a theory among NDEers, and I love this theory, that sometimes in this life, if life is about spiritual lessons, and I do think that it is, that sometimes we, we kind of sign up for more than we can handle. You know, that sometimes the lessons are bigger burdens than we thought they would be, and it's just too much for us. And that we, by design, when we're in heaven or wherever it is we come from, we're in, when we're in the place before we come to this place, that we may give ourselves an early exit. And I thought that was a pretty interesting theory. I don't know if it's true, but it's interesting. But this did feel like I had been granted early release. It really did. So I'm in this white room now, and... I know exactly what's going on. I know what that door means. That door means it's the point of no return, the crossing the Rubicon. So I couldn't wait to get to that door. I mean, I couldn't wait. And I basically said to the angels, everybody out of my way. I'm doing the door. <laughs> you don't need any discussion. We don't need to talk about this. Out of my way. I was very clear on that point. And as I was moving, I would guesstimate it was 15 to 20 feet between where I was and where I saw that door. And this room it was like a mist or a fog in this room, very heavy fog. And and yet it was all brilliant white, beautiful, luminescent, iridescent, bright, 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 white. And no lamps, no lights. It was the room was making the white, the light, the, the little droplets were making the light. Everything was producing this perfect white light. And, uh, and yet in the midst of this fog, I could see that door very clearly. And I at one point as I'm moving from where I was to the door, I tried to focus on an individual droplet, which I know sounds crazy, but I feel like I ought to be able to see that individual droplet. And the angel that was with me said, you can't focus on it because your eyes have not acclimated to this new environment. She said, well, what you're seeing are particles of light. So, and the light, and the light was, the light was alive. You know, these little droplets or particles were swirling around me and dancing around me and moving around me. And I was told that this was a place we all came to before we passed. Some people die with either a disease process or a mental illness or whatever. It's so deeply imprinted on their soul 
that they believe it to be part of their identity. And the purpose of the White Room was to restore our innate purity and an innate per perfection as the image and likeness of God, as the child of God. And that's what all the, the droplets in the light was about. And as a friend said, a friend from West Virginia told me, leave your muddy boots at the door, which I think is a great analogy. Because, I mean, how can we go to heaven when we're burdened with sadness and pain and, you know, maybe missing limbs or whatever limitations that occurred to us during this human experience? So I got to that door and it was shut. And I remember thinking in the NDE accounts I had heard, the door is open. You know, and we see our loved ones on the other side. I don't know why that door is shut. And, you know, the other thing that I guess I need to remark on is so many things happened to me in this experience, and I had so many memories, uh, and I thought about so many Bible verses, and I thought about, you know, all those years I'd kept a daily gratitude list, so I could always be grateful to God for every blessing, great and small, and I thought that gratitude had left me just feeling so grateful to be in this experience, so grateful my life was over, and so grateful uh, that my passing had been relatively painless i mean it had been a hard day to say the least but it had been relatively inconsequential and i remember thinking i had always wondered what would take me out and it was kind of funny that you know i'd been in a hospital twice uh, other than for the birth of my children i'd been in as an infant and i had died and i'd been in for a cervical biopsy and i had died and those were the two bookends of my <laughs> medical experience and i died both times that was pretty interesting so I got to that white door, and I, I noticed it shut. And I'm thinking, hmm, that door ought to be open. And I put my right hand up to push through the door. Again, pretty interested, right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. Again, everything we are goes with us, everything we are. And that's when I, I paused, and I asked, is this the divine will for my life? And I couldn't even get out past, is this divine? And the answer was immediate. And again, it came with an infusion of knowing. But the answer was, no, it's not. But whatever you decide, you go with all of God's grace and mercy and love and blessings and care. And I thought, I'll take that deal. Only oh, the other thing that was said after that is there are no wrong decisions. And that meant so much to me. I, I can't tell you what that meant to me. And And people use it generically in life. There are no wrong decisions. But I think the the heading over that is when we are desirous of doing the will of God, there are no wrong decisions. Because obviously, if you're sitting in a car and thinking about robbing somebody, it's a wrong decision to rob somebody. Right. But if you, are, if you are trying to live in God's will, I don't think you're going to make a wrong decision. And that's because I think if you make a choice that isn't right, you'll be gently guided into another path. But anyway, that's what I was told is there are no wrong decisions. And that was immensely comforting because one of my prayers had been, I'm tired of decisions. I can't make any more decisions. You know, help me with these decisions. So as I'm getting ready to push through this door, I had a vision of that RN who had been by my side in that little ER. And in that vision, I saw her sitting on a metal stool in a hospital supply room and her head in her hands, leaning forward and sobbing uncontrollably. And through tears, I heard her say, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die. And I lost her. And I looked at her and I thought, well, you know what? She's an RN. She appeared to be about my age. She's been doing this a while. She'll get over this. I need to go. Boy, do I need to go. And then I wasn't just having this vision. I was in the room with her and I felt her pain. I felt 
And the best way I can describe it is right at the center of my chest. I felt the emo emotional angst she felt over having lost somebody. And it was too much. And I recognized that agonal grief as the pain I had known so often as a consequence of my husband's suicide. And that's when I thought, I can't do this. If I can spare one person that much pain, I guess I have to go back. <laughs> my first, my very last words in heaven, the last thing I said was, it's going to ruin that nurse's day if I die, <laughs> which is kind of funny, I guess, maybe. And with that, I put my right hand back at my side. And in a millisecond, I was back on that gurney with lots of stuff happening all around me. Lots and lots and lots of stuff. You know, something I should mention in that white room, and I don't know the mechanism by which this unfolded, but I was told if I agreed to go back, I would be restored to wholeness. That was made very clear. And I was like, okay, that's fine. We're going to heaven. I don't need to know about what's going to happen if we go back to earth because I'm going to heaven. <laughs> anyway, so I got back. And when I was back in that, uh, I was transported by ambulance. This time they used lights and siren. And this time they went really, really fast. And I was taken to a trauma center, a real, uh, I can't say a real hospital, but a hospital. And there uh, they affirmed that my heart had stopped, which was really good to know. And they affirmed that I had lost so much blood, my heart had stopped. And I asked the doctor, because now I got the, the doctors that have been around a while. And I asked the doctor, I said, well, how much blood did I lose? Because, you know, the person wants to know. And they said, more than 40%. I, know, I got it, more than 40 but how much? And they said, it doesn't matter because you lost so much, there was no longer enough fluid to keep your heart going. And that's why your heart stopped. And there was an expectation that my heart was damaged. I had elevated enzymes. And there was a lot of concern about that. And then they did some heart tests, uh, I think an echocardiogram. And as they're wheeling me down for the echocardiogram, because I'm on total bed rest in this hospital, as they're wheeling me down the hall for this, they said, um, I said, we don't need to do any of this. I was healed in heaven. I'm fine, fine, fine. Everything's fine, 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 fine. And they did the test anyway. And it was so fun. The doctor came the next morning, sat at my bedside, and he said, you know, you're, Rosemary, you're very lucky. Your heart appears to be an excellent condition there is no damage and that was a surprise to everybody and then it took some time but ultimately and I had to find a second oncologist it turns out when you go back to your first oncologist because you're first supposed to start chemo soon and you say uh, hey listen uh, we're not gonna be needing that chemo radiation business because I was healed in heaven that they're not always on board with that <laughs> that they don't didn't work for it do they <laughs> that didn't go well it didn't go well at all and you know I got the who's the expert speech and you came to me speech and you know so I had to travel an hour away from my home to find another oncologist who would take the case and I just wanted to affirm that this healing was as I suspected and it was and it took another surgical biopsy and the oncologist was pretty nervous frankly and there were so many wonderful things that happened all along the way but the visual exam she did, she said, Rosemary, if there's any cancer here, it's stage one. And then there were PET scans and uh, MRI scans and scans with contrast and scans without contrast. And lots and lots of tests were done. But at every point in turn, when she'd sit me down to go over the test results, she'd say, I don't see anything. And that was very comforting. And then came the day, and they had to wait a few weeks to do the second surgical biopsy because, you know, it turns out, 
she was a lot more interested in the fact that I bled to death from a cervical biopsy than she was that I was healed in heaven. <laughs> so she actually had blood on in the room when she did the second thing. And uh, she left that surgery. It's three hours because she took a lot of flesh from a lot of places to be sure and checked it while I was still under and actually had another doctor in the room to check the slides as well or whatever it is they check now. And my friend waiting out in the waiting room, he said she came through those doors and, you know, I've been in there for three hours and she came um, through those doors and threw her arms around his neck and said, she is right. There's not one cell. And she said, in fact, her flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect that were it not for these earlier medical tests, I wouldn't believe she ever had cancer. Mm. So that was a big deal. And I, um, I don't know. It's life-changing, to say the least. And I had other things that were healed in heaven. Uh, after his death, I had multiple accidents. I injured myself. And everything was reversed. I had arthritis in my wrist. That went away. I had a busted up right knee from an accident. That was healed. You know, just the other day, my left, my, my knee was hurting. My, my knee was swelling up and pretty unpleasant. And I thought, hey, 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 this knee thing healed in heaven. We're not doing this again. And then I remembered it was my right knee, right knee that was healed in heaven, not the left. But, you know, even that the next day, the left knee was fine. So it was very profound. And after this, I sold off all my earthly possessions and sold my car, sold my home. And I moved a thousand miles due west to the Midwest to start a new life. And, uh, you know, that seems to trip up a lot of people, too. I was, a you know, baby boomer and I had the stuff I'd inherited from grandparents and parents and such. And I was able to let it all go. And I, I kept most of my clothes and I bought a slightly used Prius C, which is an itty bitty Prius. And, uh, you know, I have never missed any of those things, which is pretty interesting. But I mean, I sold everything. I donated what I couldn't sell. One of my favorite stories, the lady buying my house had actually been living with her son-in-law and her daughter. And I, she and I became fast friends. And I said to her, hey, I've got this refrigerator full of stuff. And, you know, it's the condiments and the frozen foods and just all the stuff we keep in our refrigerators. And I said, I'm just going to have to throw it out for this thousand-mile move. And I said, but is there any chance you would want these things? And she said, absolutely. Do you know how much money that's going to save me not to have to buy that stuff? And I've heard people talk about the divine, in the divine economy, there is no waste. And I love that, that even down to the mustard, the ketchup, and the mayo, nothing was wasted. Nothing was, was for naught. So I started my new life. And in my new life, you know, I still have problems, human problems. And I uh, still have things I struggle with, still have some anxiety, but it's very different. And uh, the thing about the emotional trauma being healed that was pretty massive because I was, I was circling the drain. And what the angels told me about that, they said everything about that suicide and the darkness and the societal being treated like a leper and the societal isolation and everything you went through, it's been encapsulated. It's been wrapped up in non-permeable, heavy material. And you can't say it never happened because it's a thing and it hurt and it happened, but it can't hurt you anymore. And, and that helped me to look at that thing more objectively. And to set, instead of, I mean, there was a day I came across a box. I was into ham radio. I was a licensed extra. And I used to buy all the radio equipment. 
And one day I opened up a box and saw my thousand dollar Yesu radio in the box and I collapsed. I collapsed and I said, no wonder he killed himself. You were so selfish. You bought all this crap. He didn't like ham radio. And I cried. And those things used to drag me out to sea. And I used to say all the time, no wonder he killed himself. Look at you. Look at you. And that stopped. That stopped. And now I would say, you know what? Actually, one of the things the angels told me is we're to work out our own salvation. I had been trying to work out his salvation. He was an agnostic. I spent 10 years trying to bring him to Christ, trying to show him there is a God, trying to teach him about the power of prayer. And one of the things the angel said was, we are to work out our own salvation. Nobody, nobody ever told you that you were his spiritual guardian. You appointed yourself to that position. And then when he killed himself without finding God and finding the peace of Christ, I blamed myself incessantly. I mean, it's one thing to fail yourself. It's one thing to fail a friend. But to fail God, you know, I, I was a mess. And so be, to be released from that shackle, that I had failed God, that I had lost one of his children that had been entrusted to me, was so liberating. And I asked the angels, where is he? And the first answer I got was, is he's with us. And that brought me immeasurable peace because I thought, okay, at least I know where he is. Because it was an unanswerable question before. And then I said, okay, but what's going on with him? Where is he precisely? And the answer was, none of your business. And I thought, coming from the angels that keep company with the Most High God, that seems rather brusque. But it was explained to me again, I was, he was not my spiritual charge. I was not responsible for him. And, you know, it's funny, but it took years for that to really sink in all the way. It sank in pretty quickly, and I felt liberated. But it's still, still sometimes I get back into, well, why did he do this? And I think, no, no, no. It's been encapsulated. It can't hurt me anymore. And I was not responsible for him. I did my best to be a shining light. I did my best to show him what God's love looks like. And boy, I, I know I fell short, but I did my best. And it was so liberating. And it's and continues to be very liberating that he's not my responsibility. And I did my best. And to leave it there. Because one of the haunting thoughts I had after this word came was there are no do-overs. There is no second chance. And one of the miracles, and I talk about this in my book, by the way, my website is temporarydeath.com. But one of the things I talk about in my book, uh, so I was in Boston when the call came that he had ended his life and he was about 600 miles away. So I immediately got on a plane trying to get back home for lots of reasons. And it was very, very difficult to get a flight and to find a seat on a flight and blah, 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 blah. But I, I ended up on a Southwest flight heading south, and Southwest held the plane for me. I didn't even know they did that. But because of the circumstances, they held the plane. <laughs> and I got through TSA, and uh, I went running down the corridor, and there at the gate was the gate agent, and she comes toward me as I'm running toward the gate, and she said, are you Mrs. Thornton? And I said, yes. And she grabbed the boarding pass and she said, keep running. <laughs> so I ran down the, the, the jetway and I jumped on that plane and they literally slammed the door right behind me. And I mean, as soon as I came through, she said, you're Mrs. Thornton. And I said, yes. And she slammed the door 
and she seated me. And you know, Southwest is basically a cattle call. You seat where there, you you are seated where there's an empty seat, and there was one empty seat left on that plane, which I took. And I sat down beside this guy, and he was um, he kind of a rough looking cat. He had a leather uh, vest with um, some patches, and he was wearing a t-shirt, and he had tattoos. And and yet you could see in his eyes he had kind eyes. And I said, thank you for letting me sit here. I am grateful. And I can't remember exactly what else I said, but he said, you look, you look a little troubled. What's going on? Which is a pretty generous thing to ask somebody. Yeah. And I said, um, I told him, I said, I just got word that my husband killed himself. And I said, and the last thing he did was argue with me. And I said, I, I don't know how to fix this. There are no do-overs there's nothing I can ever do for the rest of my life to revisit that last argument. And his name was, um, well, let's call him D. <laughs> I don't know if he wants his name out in the world, but he said, he looked straight ahead for a minute and he said, it's going to be hard for you to get over this. He said, but I want you to remember huh, for the rest of your life that God is watching over you. And I know you don't feel it now. He said, but my mother did the same thing to me. She called me. She started an argument. She hung up on me. And then she put a gun in her, in, to her head. Oh. And I was like, wow, what are the odds really? that that's my seatmate on a Southwest plane? And I, I have always remembered that. And he talked to me. It was a short flight. It was less than, I think it was a 45-minute flight. But he talked to me for the duration of the flight. And he said what he told me. He said, there will be a day. He said, it's, it's going to be a while, but there will be a day where you, you, you go five minutes without thinking about how bad this hurts. And there will be a day when you go 30 minutes without thinking about how bad this hurts. And there will be a day when you make it to an hour. And then eventually in time, there will be 24 hours when you stop thinking about how bad this hurts. He said, that day will come, but it's going to be a while. He said, but you're going to get a little better with every month that passes. And he said, and I'm here to tell you, I still think about my mom. I still love my mom. I still wish my mom had made better choices. I still wish she hadn't left me with this. He said, but I forgive her and I forgive myself. And he said, one day you're going to find that peace too. And that is when my healing started, really. And then the whole thing about dying, I just, <laughs> I'm a sensitive soul. I, I think God, you know, I, I, I never sued anybody. And a lot of people say, oh, you could own the hospital for what they did to you. Well, I don't need a hospital. And two, I wanted peace. And nobody in this human drama said, let's kill the author lady. They were all doing their best, and they all made mistakes. But nobody had anything but the best of intentions throughout this whole thing. But the bigger picture, I really do believe this was divinely authorized. And how do you buck against that? Right. I believe it was God saying, listen. You've been living in a septic tank. You've been living in filth. You've been mired in it. You know, the Bible says, behold, if I make my bed in hell, if I make my head bed in hell, behold, thou art there. I had, I had made my bed in hell. I had set up housekeeping in hell. And the whole thing to heaven, I think, was God's way of saying, you don't need to be in hell. You're not going to stay there. You're not going to run out the clock in hell. Let me show you. And, you know, I hadn't even thought about this till just now, but what's the rest of that psalm? If I make, if I, uh, if I have wings of something and I ascend to heaven, behold, thou art there. I mean, it's a contrast. If you're in hell, God's with you. If you're in heaven, God's with you. So it, 
and now this has been three and a half years since my death. <laughs> and I call it temporary death. I wasn't slightly dead. I wasn't near dead. I was completely dead. And uh, there were so many blessings that came from this. But I guess one of them is my story has gone far and wide, which was kind of a surprise. And back to that woman, one of the very early lectures I gave, and a woman, uh, I told the story shortly, a day or two after my husband's suicide. I had literally lost the ability to eat and drink. I, I, it just felt like my throat had closed. I just couldn't get anything down, uh, certainly not liquid. And my daughter took me to a, an urgent care thing somewhere in the city. And uh, she was with me. And um, this, again, was just like a day or two after his death. And the doctor came in, and he was very breezy and light. He sees me and my daughter, and I'm sitting on the examining table. And he looks at my daughter, and he says, so, ladies, what's the problem here? And my daughter looks at him and says, well, her husband killed himself, and she can't eat or drink. And the doctor literally reeled back and went, oh, oh my God, oh, my God. And he said, my aunt Bertha did the same thing 45 years ago, and she was never right in the head again. Oh. And my daughter, and I'm so proud of her for this, she looked at him, and I mean, the kid was 29 at the time. She looked at him and she said, Doctor, that is not helpful. Are you going to help my mother or not? <laughs> Which is great. Oh. And, he, and to his credit, he snapped to and he snapped out of it. And, you know, he, he took the chart. And he said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to prescribe some benzodiazepines. These are powerful tranquilizers. She can take two at a time. And that will enable her to calm down a little bit. She's probably in shock. And, I mean, so he came back pretty quick. But when I shared this story at uh, one of my first live talks before the days of all this Zoom business, a woman in the audience stood up during the question and answer period, and she said, I'm a medical professional, and I wish you would write a book because we don't know how to deal with trauma of this level in the world of medicine, as is evidenced by what you experienced. And she said, we need to learn how to deal with trauma. And by the way, that is true. I sought psychiatric help, and the soonest appointment was, I think, almost a month away. And when you're living in daytight compartments, when you're living 15 minutes at a time, just trying to get through 15 minutes, four weeks seems like a hundred years away and ultimately I had a friend in mental health care and I uh, I reached out to my friend and she had a friend literally a social buddy that was a psychiatrist and that woman saw me after hours at seven o'clock at night she said tell her to come after my day is over I'll see her right away and she uh, that psychiatrist was a help she helped me for two and a half years in fact after I went to heaven and came back I went back to her and I said I'm doing okay now I'm gonna be all right and that psychiatrist, by the way, she was great. She said she had quite an accent. And I won't imitate her because it might identify her. <laughs> I'm really good at imitating people. But she said, when you first came in here, she said, I remember I went home and I told my husband, I've never had a patient that scares me, but this woman scares me. She's brilliant. She's intense. She doesn't take platitudes. And if I say something out of line, she will look in my eyes and say, I know that's popular in your textbook, but that does not help me. So don't talk about cliches. Talk to me. How am I going to find peace? My husband killed himself. So knock off the cliches and the platitudes and say something that will help me. And, I mean, I did talk to her that way because I, I felt it. I really felt it, you know. So uh, you found your she, voice. 
I did. And that, that psychiatrist told me later, I mean, at that last visit, because I went to see her one more time to say goodbye before I moved away. It seemed like the right thing to do. She said, I can tell, I can tell Miss Rosemary, you're going to be okay. <laughs> but she said, you did scare me because I've never had anybody that intense. And by the way, it was big, big, big psychiatric practice. And she had referred me or, or the, the practice had referred me to a uh, therapist, a talk therapist, you know, uh, for th talk therapy. And this doctor said, uh, to whom did they refer you? And I gave the name and she said, oh, no, 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 no. Miss Rosemary will eat her for lunch and we will see that poor woman <laughs> running down the street saying, I quit, I quit, I quit. And she said, no, 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 I'm going to refer you to somebody different. And she did. And she said, this woman has an intellect like you. <laughs> she said, you won't send her running down the street, quitting her job. So. <laughs> so it was it was quite a journey and uh somebody said i love this i love this somebody said finally a writer who's had an nde that can tell us what it was like and i don't know why i came back you know i've got a, an appointment with a dentist tomorrow and this is one of those days <laughs> due to pain this is one of those days that leaves me thinking i should have taken that door i should not Aww. be going to the dentist tomorrow I hate, I can't say I hate, but I don't like the dentist. Are you in pain? A little. Okay. But, you know, I'm just, I'm just not a fan of the dentist. And so, you know, I woke up this morning and I said my best prayers and I'm like, wait, I'm still in pain. <laughs> so, you know, when people get into this, we were talking earlier before we were live, we were talking about hypothetical people wandering into the hypothetical and the people who say, oh, you know, in another, um, what is it they say? In another dimension, your husband's still alive. They say, you just need to channel and go into that other dimension. I'm like, ah, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. And, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which is one of the pioneers of the NDE thing and, and, and death and dying. I mean, you know, she was a remarkable woman. But she said when people get into this whole, um, this physical experience is only a dream and it's only as real as you decide to make it and nothing is really real and row 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 your boat life is but a dream it turns out that's the truth of the whole thing and she said when people say that she said i want to take a, a sewing needle and poke them in the thigh and watch them jump two feet straight up and say how's that esoteric theory working for you <laughs> and i feel the same when we get into these hypotheticals about oh your child is still alive in another dimension that's cruelty that is extreme cruelty, in my opinion, because we're not living in hypotheticals. And then, you know, the number one question I get is, why did God heal you and not me? I don't know. I can't answer that without wandering into the hypotheticals. I do believe there are spiritual laws. I do believe it's not a miracle. I believe there are spiritual laws that we just don't understand. I believe the new frontier in healing is going to be spiritual. We have to look at what's behind why somebody gets sick. Like I was just telling you, I decided to take a vow of silence. And then days later, I get laryngitis. We really have to be careful with our words. And, you know, the other thing, I had somebody do something very unkind, really cruel to me. And I was just laying in bed, not feeling very well a few days ago. I thought, man, you know what? What that person did, I'm trying to forgive them. I'm trying to move on. I want to let it go. I mean, it was very malicious, very ugly. But I thought, you know, that really sticks in my craw. And I thought, ruh row, where is your craw? I don't even know what a craw is. I looked it up. Do you know what your craw is? No. Your craw is right here. Really? Yeah. So I go around saying, boy, what that woman did really sticks in my craw. 
I'm like, I'm going to be so careful about the words I use now. I mean, in the beginning was the word. The word is a big deal. So I don't know. I, I guess that's kind of a digression. But we really need to be careful about people who've been through trauma to not wander off in the hypothetical. And, and why was I healed and other people aren't? I don't know. I don't have an answer. But I, I feel like Jesus and the blind man, when, the blind, when people asked the blind man who could see, he said, I don't have answers for your questions. But what I can tell you was I was blind. And now I can see, and it was Jesus that healed me. So when people say, why did my grandma die? Why, did, why were you saved? I say, I don't know. I know that I was sick, and I, I was with God, and now I'm healed. That's what I know. I can't answer for anybody else. So I guess it's like, not unlike my husband. I can't answer. I can't be his spiritual guardian. I can't be anybody else's spiritual guardian. You know, work out your own salvation. So, but yeah, my life is very different now. Uh, I try to be, I still try to be a blessing to the world. And boy, I sure do fall short sometimes. You know, I, I, I was on a phone call with some customer service person and they irritated me and aggravated me. And I found myself raising my voice. And then I think, wow, aren't you a lovely example of love and light? <laughs> when this poor customer service person somewhere in India or something and you give them a tongue lashing. So it is a work in progress. It, yeah. Boy, oh boy, is it a work in progress. Yeah, it is. I think as long as we realize there's two ways we can be and realize that we do have a choice in how we treat ourselves and how we treat others. And just every day, just try to do a little better than yesterday. That's all I know. Yes. We're going to mess up. But as, yeah, I think as long as we keep trying. There was a uh, co-worker, 23 years old, that committed suicide. Uh, two, three years ago, his mm -hmm. name's Mitchell, a sweet, sweet young kid. Just, I mean, I stopped, my husband was working on pipeline. And I said, look at him. I was just in awe of him. You know, he was so, he was just so kind. And is it a characteristic you find on the pipeline so often? And he was so friendly and helpful and just adorable. And he started having some problems. He started coming to me uh, for about a week. And I told him what I thought he should do, contact an attorney, the issue he had. And he was so happy the morning that he committed suicide. He was so happy because his lawyer had just called him. He got that problem taken care of. Everything was going to be fine. And he was really stressed out. People had been telling him, your life's over. It's ruined because of the legal situation he was in. So he was so happy that morning. And then by the end of the day, right at quitting time, I saw him again and another guy that was really bad news and a bad influence on him and made him feel really bad about himself. And I saw them together and um, kind of chit chat a little bit. But the thing was, is that morning when they we had our little meeting, as we did, we did every morning, I bumped my husband and I whispered to him, one of us is going to die today. Mm. I, it was a knowing. And I looked at those two guys and I thought, one of them, who's it going to be? And I thought, you know, is one going to kill the other? Or I don't know. I thought somebody's going to die today. I felt it. It was like in the air. And then, um, so that was the last we saw Mitchell's at quitting time. And then the next day, Mitchell wasn't at work. And the other guy that had been with me, the bad news guy, He's the one that told us, and he seemed like he took so much joy in telling us Mitchell killed himself, shot himself the night before, unless like midnight. And um, 
I told my husband, take me over to where I saw Mitchell happy the day morning before when he was so happy, had the good news and was telling me this. And he was just so happy after being so depressed for a week. I just felt I needed to go there. And so the guys was over talking and I went, he took me over and I went to that spot and I was alone and I was just remembering Mitchell, how happy he was. I'm thinking, Mitchell, why? And all of a sudden I saw him and he was smiling and he went, I messed up. Oh, wow. As he just was smiling. He went, I messed up. Hmm. And so I was able to talk to his uncle later and his mother. And we've been Facebook friends ever since me and his mom. And she's still so devastated over her son. And, um, you know, the anniversary of his death. And, you know, and I, if I have friends that has a child's committed suicide, I'll connect them together so that maybe they can help each other. But, but yeah, I'll never, and I told him, told the family, I said, I saw him and he went, I missed him. And so, you know, I don't know, but I'm, I'm so glad that you've come through it. Okay. And I'm so glad your cancer is gone and you've got these miracles. And I'm so glad that you were told that you did die, you know, as an infant and you have that to know why you were the way you were growing up. And um, these things are so many blessings. And like you said, why are we back and others weren't? And what struck me too is that when you were in the bathroom bleeding and when, uh, see another time you said, oh, with a nurse, when you thought of her, it makes me think of in those moments, I don't know if people really talk about this, but in those moments as we're dying or about to die, most people aren't able to express this because they went ahead and died was gone. But in those moments, we do have those moments of thinking of others. I mean, as five years old and drowning and I was at the bottom of the pond, I remember thinking, oh, that's too bad because my parents have to, have to drive past this pond with the five, you know, the four kids in the car and always think that's where Peg is. I thought I'd never be found. I thought I'd always be left at the bottom of this pond. And I thought that's sad that they're always going to have to have that burden of, mm -hmm always passing that knowing us where I am. And I thought, well, you know, this is a fun play. This is my five-year-old logic. And I thought, you know, I thought it would ruin this place. This is a fun place to go swimming and fishing. I'm going to ruin it for everybody there because they're going to know a dead girl's in here and they're, they're going to be creeped out. This is my five-year-old logic, you know? And so I was thinking these thoughts about others, like how my death would affect others. And then when I was 20 years later, my 25-year-old um, um, NDE, and we were headed to the hospital, and all of a sudden, my pain had stopped, and I said a prayer, God, just let me stay alive long enough to get to the hospital, because I don't want to do this to my husband. He'll be all freaked out along the highway with his dead wife. You know, he's praying for twins. I don't, just let me get to the hospital. It's so funny hearing you say that, and I'm thinking back of other NDEers. It just kind of clicked how we have these moments of consciousness that aren't uh, like we're in our soul self that really look out and can see the future and how these things will all affect at least how we think they'll affect whether they actually would play out that way it's just something that i picked up on so yeah <laughs> there are a lot of commonalities when i was being loaded into the ambulance for transport to the hospital one of the thoughts i had was i've just had an nde I've spent my whole life reading about them, and I just had one. And I thought it was nothing like I read about. <laughs> and one of the things, you know, one of the questions we all get is, are you making this up? And I always say, you know, if I was going to make this up, 
I I could do something a lot more traditional. I exactly. wouldn't be doing the the white room. Exactly. Being an author, <laughs> man, it could be the best thing out there, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think about that too with me. I have a hard time with short time short term uh, short short term memory. And so if I was going to make up a I've always been the worst liar. I mean, I learned as a kid. Like my, I have a sister, a middle sister that was compulsive liar. And to this day, she's just an excellent liar. You can be excellent. And I was just, I learned as a little kid, I'm not a good liar. I wasn't smart enough. You know, I didn't know that I had a short-term memory problem. And I have this conscious that just doesn't allow me to try for very long to do anything wrong. I'm like confessing all over the place and feeling guilty and so remorseful. And I'm just not cut out for it. And so, no, but yeah. And well, I think that and the cost of lying. I mean, anyone who's got any spiritual depth will realize the cost of lying is phenomenal. There's just no lie that's worth it. Yeah. Never. How can you be in heaven? And come back and lie about God, Jesus, what it's like there, what anything. How could you? Because, you know, I even have guilt for all that time. I didn't tell my story very much because, you know, I didn't want to look stupid or like a liar or crazy. And I feel really guilty about that now because, yeah. you know, I was given my life back so I could raise my three little boys. And I was told, no, it is your time where everybody else was told something else. You know, they're told huh. it is their time. I was told I wanted to go back and I was told the answer was no, that it was huh. my time. And I just kept pleading, pleading. And so when I was suddenly back in that wheelchair, that shock of I was dead and just accepting it. And now I'm back will be with me till my last breath and gratitude that I was given that chance. You know, I still didn't know if I was going to make it through the night, but obviously I did. But so there's that gratitude. And I, I mean, the last thing I wanted, wanted to do was to, when I die the next time, be in front of God and God say, well, why didn't you tell anybody? And I'd be, well, because I didn't look crazy or stupid, you know, like I gave you your life back. You know how many mothers wanted their life back to raise their children? And, and I didn't grant that. I grant it to you. And you didn't tell anybody. Like, I would see the scenario. And I'm like, I'm talking the rest of my life. I don't care anybody thinks. And again, put me in a in, in mental institution. I don't care. I'm not shutting up. Yeah. I know. that's And it's hard for me because I'm a very private person. And, you know, I, I had the author thing for 20 years. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. But this is a very different, this is extremely personal. I mean, my book is basically a memoir and it's been very difficult for me. But what, what keeps me plodding on is that I do get a lot of emails from people saying, your story helped me. Your story touched my life. My favorite story came from a fellow suicide widow and she took screenshots of the book and uh, took it with her to her next therapist appointment and said, what this woman is saying is how I feel. And that's immensely comforting. Wow. But I do get a lot of very nice emails. I get the, you know, you're the spawn of Satan emails too. But um, that they're down to about 1%. <laughs> and I get about 1% are the you never died, you're making it up. Uh, but you know, I, have you heard of Annabelle Beam? Yes. The one yes, fell into a cottonwood tree? 
Yes. Oh, isn't it a great movie? But she says to her mom, her mom is disappointed because they recognize that about 30% of people are saying, oh, it's just a story. She, this never happened or there is no God or whatever people love to say. And she said, mom, it's okay. There will be a day when they believe. So it's okay if they don't believe right now. We get there when we get there. So she said, I read the book too. It's a little different. I did too. I read the book too. I love that story. So I think, you know, when people ask me, why did you come back? Why did you come back? I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe to write a book. I don't know. I don't well, know. I hope your story also helps people that might be contemplating suicide to realize you don't know how badly you're going to hurt somebody and destroy them. Yeah. The best definition I've heard of suicide was on an NBC show. Um, actually, uh, I think it's a blacklist where Red Reddington is talking with somebody who's thinking about killing themselves. And he says, it's like a suicide bomber that straps all the explosives to a vest and then blows himself up to cause as much damage as possible. Those closest to the de detonation are just body parts. And those, you know, in, in every ring, concentric ring going out from that, there's, there's lesser damage, but there's a lot of damage. And that's true. Those closest, I'm in a group on social media for suicide widows. They saved my life. I mean, they were the ones in those 29 months that kept giving me the will to face another day. And, you know, people talk about suicide prevention, which frankly sets my hair on fire. If you want to talk about real suicide prevention, hey, how about we identify a known risk group, which are men and women who have survived the death of their spouse or child by suicide. And depending on whose statistics you believe, they're 12 to 48 times more likely to end their own life, 12 to 48 times more likely than the average population. So now we have a known risk group. And what do we do? We, we isolate them. We treat them like social lepers. When my husband was laid out in the closed casket and the visitation and the people all lined up to come pay their regards or condolences or whatever, I see them. I see their body language as they approach with their spouse and they hug them a little bit tighter hoping that nothing this horrible ever befalls their happy home where they come up to me and they say things like, I don't know what I'd do if anything happened to my Bobby. I just lay down and die. Well, you know what? I guess I didn't love my husband as much as you love Bobby there because you know what? Somehow I'm still standing. So we do, we isolate people who are the victims of suicide. We, we, we put them off. We say that's scary. That's trauma. I, I reached out to multiple churches for solace and succor and, and overwhelmingly I was treated contemptuously and to their credit, I found a lot of comfort. I found, I did find comfort like in the Catholic church and I talked to priests who were very, 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 very helpful and they keep their doors open. I would go sit in the Catholic church for hours every day because I felt safe in the sanctuary. I literally felt safe and comforted, but and there is something called Stephen Ministries that's more and more Christian churches are starting to do, which is where they train a handful of people to specifically deal with folks in trauma. And they are lay people, but it's a start. But you shouldn't have to know somebody in mental health care so you can get psychiatric care. You shouldn't have to go to 15 churches to find that one church that knows how to offer true spiritual support and help. It's just we don't know how to deal with trauma. You know, we're figuring out how to deal with bipolar and borderline personality and schizophrenia and all this other stuff. But that's the, what the woman said to me at that first talk I gave is we don't know how to deal with sudden trauma in otherwise mentally healthy people. And even in friendly circles, I've had people ask me, well, do you think you're dealing with 
um, do you think you're, you're dealing with PTSD? Do you think you're dealing with depression? I mean, we, we shouldn't be armchair psychologists. I don't know. I just, I could go off on a hundred different rants, but the number one thing is suicide prevention. We need to look at who are the potential risk group. And that's somebody who's lost someone to suicide. And I think we need to just be better people and be open to our family and friends when they're having a situation to say, are you okay? Like the guy on the plane, do you want to talk about it? Because, you know, my husband in January, he had a bad diagnosis and we're finding out now that we think it was a misdiagnosis and we still got more testing, but he had a bad diagnosis and I reached out to family. I reached out to friends and just nobody was there. Yeah. And I was, I know. In, I was in shock. Nobody's there. Nobody I knows know. what to say or they got their own lives and you know, our whole world just stopped and nobody else's does. They keep right on going. They do. And that's hard to face. You know, I would wake up, morning after morning after morning and I see babies growing up and I see husbands and wives getting closer and people buying houses and people planting gardens and I was like my world stopped how is it that other people's goes on and I was angry 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 for a long time and honestly just now the hard edges of that anger are starting to disappear because why me why 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 i did not have an easy adolescence my first marriage did not end well this was my second marriage why when do the happy days come when can i just sit back and say oh so that's what happy feels like and i realized that in my own life experience i i've learned how to have happy moments i don't know that i'll ever have happy days again but i know how to find happy moments and joyful times within the days and and that's huge. That's actually huge. And I try to focus. I actually keep a list. I no longer keep a gratitude list. But I keep a list of the lovely little things where I feel God is saying, look, I'm still here. I'm still paying attention. And I was, I was in my car, gosh, just about a year ago. Because COVID's been very hard for a single woman, let me tell you. I was in my car driving and I was crying and I thought, I'm so lonely. I'm so alone. Why did I come back from heaven? I'm just so lonely. I'm so alone. And I was sitting at a stoplight praying and I opened, I heard a little voice say, open your eyes. And I opened my eyes and there's a work truck, a construction truck in front of me, but he's got a bumper sticker on it and it says, you are never alone. (laughs) And I thought, that's not a coincidence. That's one of those little miracles where God is tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you know what? I'm still here. And in fact, my cell phone, on the back of my cell phone, I don't know if you can see it, but I've got Isaiah 54 printed out oh, on the back of my cell phone, which is, uh, fear not, uh, thou shalt not be put to shame, thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore, for thy maker is thine husband. And I live with that. I literally live with that. Thy maker is thy husband. I just, I cling to that with every single thing that I have. When we left uh, my husband's specialist appointment, because I want a second opinion on his diagnosis. And she says, he doesn't have this. We're going to do some more tests, but you know. And so as we left that doctor's office, headed to uh, my son's home, we're just like excited. And he calls his um, business manager at work and says, I don't have that. It's alpha one. It's a type of rare um, COPD. And he said, I don't have it. No, we still have to do another uh, test to test 
they told him he had 25% use of his lungs. So we've got to redo that. But they don't see how he could because this is not, it's fine. So anyway, so we're all excited. And so I look over and as we're headed down the road, just like 10 minutes from the doctor and at the top of this big, tall building says, um, bravo, bravo. <laughs> on one side and then on the other. And I took a picture of it <laughs> and I posted it on Facebook. I said, we just got good news. You want an alpha one? And I look over and see this and it just felt like that. Like yes. you just meant to see this at the, that moment. It's yes, like, I believe that's that here. my whole heart. Yeah, I heard years ago, coincidences are little miracles where God chooses to remain anonymous. But that's my new list. I don't do the daily gratitude anymore. I do a daily miracle list of times where something's impossible, but it happened. And it's God's way of saying, you're not alone. You know, I'm here with you. Yeah. So I thank you for this opportunity. This has been delightful. Yes, it has. And um, keep in touch on Facebook. Yes. And I gave Absolutely. you a phone number while go. Let me know what happens. Yes, I will take care of that later today. All right. Okay. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much. Uh-huh.